The very idea of running a startup has taken on so much glamour and hype. But what's it really like? Is it more about grit, resilience, even luck? What about those make or break moments where things can either come together or go totally off the rails? That's where things get interesting, and those are the stories we'll explore. From the founder's perspective, unfiltered and honest. I'm Jenny Fielding, and I'm the Managing Director of Techstars New York City. I'm also an investor, founder, and an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship. And this is Founder Rising. We're super excited today to have Ben Yuretsky, the founder of DigitalOcean, which is a cloud service platform that developers love. Welcome, Ben. Yes, thank you so much, Jenny. So I'd love to start out at the beginning and just talk a little bit about what made you found DigitalOcean and more specifically, the experiences you had before that really informed the founding journey. DigitalOcean is the second company that I've built. I started both businesses with my brother. So our first company, we started in 2003, managed hosting, competed with Rackspace at the time, selling a whole slew of services to ensure that companies can kind of run their online operations. That was a great business. It was bootstrapped. We did it for about eight years until 2011, had about five or six million in revenue. And we felt that there was kind of an existential threat coming into the market with cloud computing and Amazon creating this new paradigm. So we were no longer confident in the long-term success of that original business and essentially wanted to create a cloud company from the ground up. So um, instead of taking on Rackspace, you thought, I'll just take on Amazon. Yeah, exactly. We knew the, the market was actually larger. <laughs> That's really what excited us. And the first company was really a professional services company. And we were really concerned about how we would be able to scale revenue and scale the business. So what we wanted to do with the second company was build a product company, a software company, with the idea that if that product fits a customer need, I'd be able to really scale out over time in a much more autonomous fashion. That's where we kind of took the decade of experience we had in building online web infrastructure and started to really productize and package that up. So a very different company from an operations perspective. Many people thought you got to be a little crazy taking the Amazon beast on. And there were a lot of people that underestimated you guys and kind of rolled their eyes. So in those early days, what gave you the conviction that this was the thing? Yeah, that's that's a great question. When you're younger, you don't necessarily think about the things that are going to fail. You think about, okay, what's that thing that's going to allow us to succeed and win? And so we felt that we really understood the Amazon business. We were essentially customers. We were building for ourselves. And what was apparent is that Amazon brought a tremendous amount of complexity to cloud computing and cloud infrastructure. And that could be seen as a positive. If you're a very large scale enterprise, you can outsource your entire IT operation, your entire data center now into the cloud and to Amazon. However, as a small to medium sized company or as a small team of developers, the experience was actually very cumbersome, very painful. You would need to spend a lot of time to learn the Amazon ecosystem and build on top of it. And thereafter, support was challenging and difficult to find and, and pricing even more complicated. And so what really gave us the conviction is that in some ways, Amazon was already coming after our first company because they had disrupted the dedicated server model brought in cloud computing. So we felt this urge that we needed to do something that was having actually more constraints and the, more of these kind of threats 
enables you to take bigger bets. And the second is that we really felt that we understood this customer essentially building for ourselves and wanted to build a product that we would love. So it was really more of a kind of a passion pursuit than per se doing a financial spreadsheet to figure out, okay, this market is lucrative. Let's let's figure out a way into it. I find when I talk to founders that are empath founders, right? They're really building for themselves. They're solving a problem that they have this itch. They need to solve it. They don't care. Oftentimes they come up against big, crazy obstacles, but they really just don't care. So in those early days, you heard no a lot. Yeah. What got you through those moments, would you say? Being young and naive. <laughs> <laughs> I think what you were saying in terms of being involved in the work, you develop insight that you feel is unique and not shared by the rest of the world. And that insight drives you to build a company and to actually try to bring that to market and see if it works. So I think the thing that kept on giving us confidence is that the few customers that we would interact with on a one-to-one as we were really early beta testing this product really came away saying, hey, we love what you've built here. And that customer reinforcement allowed us to really persist through investors who were very skeptical of, well, you're taking on Amazon, you're focusing on a developer market, and you want to differentiate because customers are going to love your product. It does sound like a far-fetched story, but we had kind of the evidence and the insight that customers were looking for something different. And so I think a lot of it really was the fact that we had some resources to be able to build this business. And we had the customer validation early on that said, hey, we should really continue to take this further. Even with good metrics and things of that sort, and a lot of investors would still shy away. Many firms have a thesis that we don't want to compete with Amazon and they're looking for entirely new markets. The way that we saw it is actually, this is kind of a de-risked plan because there's a huge market opportunity there. The question is just what market share could this company achieve? I feel like you guys look at the world in a really different way around de-risk. Some people would say there's a lot of risk investing in two brothers, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you guys took another take on that. In the early days when it was just you guys, how did you feel about bringing other people into the fold and kind of creating that digital ocean culture, which is so specific? I love working with other like-minded individuals. And what's unique about DigitalOcean specifically is we have five co-founders. And it was like a rock band, if you will. <laughs> Everyone knew their part and, and they played it extremely well. We're still super close. It's interesting over the eight years that the business has been alive. Every co-founder has actually exited the company. And each one of those transitions was definitely you know heartbreaking and challenging at the time. But we were able to really maintain a friendship and now are, are closer than ever. My brother Moisey was head of product. We hired Mitch, who was head of marketing. We had Jeff, who was the head of the infrastructure technology. Alec did the front-end website, and I play the CEO role, kind of stay out of the way of the team, make sure we have the financing, and ultimately just you know push them ahead. Uh, six months into it, I'm like, guys, I can't believe you're still writing code. This stuff works. You know, let's let's ship it. Obviously, if you feel like it's not ready for prime time, that's a great time to release your product. So talk us through that moment. You push everyone to release the product in the early days. There's a lot riding on this. What happened? You know, predictable that it failed. <laughs> Essentially, your first launch is never going to be as large as you expect. We launched right around March of 2012. We did a New York Tech meetup. That was awesome. 800 attendees. 
here in New York. And, uh, you know, we got about 50 customers out of it. But it was a slow trickle signing up one to two customers a day thereafter at best. And these customers are averaging about $5 a month. So we've invested tens of thousands of dollars into servers, into infrastructure. There's a monthly operating cost behind all of it. We were definitely in the red and we're paying the salary of essentially the co-founding team as well. So we definitely struggled in the first few months and then ultimately were recommended to go to Techstars. We're like, okay, Techstars can help solve this problem. We did the demo day and, you know, actually did not change customer acquisition at all. So towards the end of 2012, we were pretty desperate, honestly. Actually, one of the big transition points during that last kind of three or four months is that I just couldn't afford to pay the salary for the other co-founders. I told them that and and said, hey, but you should definitely stick around because your equity is going to more than make up for it. That's where we lost our first co-founder. One of the guys just wasn't willing to do that. That's a hard moment, right? This is your baby. You guys have been working on it. And you feel like this person is in it with you. And yeah. turns out that for many reasons, they're not. Yeah. But, you know, you still have four remaining <laughs> people on the team And I think it's great because it just shows you who's still really committed and into the project. And once you kind of take that short-term financial incentive of a salary out of the equation, now you're working for kind of sweat equity. You really have people around the table that are super committed, super passionate. And I think one of the things I've seen over the years, the difference of working with co-founders is that they understand the business to the same degree, maybe they see it from a different perspective, but they're pushing, they're just as proactive. And it's been really difficult to find the right kind of executives or managers to take over who approach it with that same level of commitment. So actually, one of the things that I really encourage people to do is almost at all costs, figure out a way to work with your co-founders. Almost every business gets stressed where there is going to naturally be co-founder conflict. I tend to think that, you know, if you can figure out a special role, figure out how to keep that person engaged, how to maintain a relationship, don't burn that bridge. I mean, this is a friend as well as a business partner. I think that actually yields greater insight and greater success for the company long term than losing kind of co-founders. And it's painful. And what you're losing is someone who will create insight for the business that you wouldn't be able to find somewhere else. So co-founders are magical. Hold on to them. So raising money, always a, a topic that people are interested in. At some points, it was a massive struggle for you guys, pitched lots of people. At other times, people were pushing to get into your round. So in those early days when you guys were flying back and forth to San Francisco and pitching Sand Hill, give us some insight on what that was like. Yeah, it was our second round. It was the Series A. And we created a who's who of Silicon Valley. It was about a 15-name list. And the interesting thing is that out of that conversation, we only got about one or two parties really excited. And and I mean, our metrics were just through the roof. This is now a million dollar a month business, almost doubling in size every single quarter. And you still have investors who are very hesitant to really jump into this play because one, they're competing with Amazon. It's a bottoms up, go to market with developers And they were just concerned about the long-term sustainability and the growth of the company. So I think similarly to the way co-founders create a unique relationship, you have the same with investors. And what's been great is that the investors who do present terms, they understand the business at a fundamental level that other investors do not. 
And so it's almost like a self-selection process where the remaining ones become really good partners because they believe in where the company is headed. It's a very optimistic way to looking at it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> when people are saying no and you've got great metrics and you're kind of scratching your head. Yeah, we scratched our head numerous times and it's great you stay in touch with that person and you reconnect a year or two later and, you know, they're kicking themselves saying we should have been in that deal. And we're like, yeah, absolutely. But that only further strengthens the relationship you have with the investors who do come into the deal. And I think it's critical not only to think about the firm, but also the partner you're going to be working with over time, especially as the board grows the time that a CEO commits to managing a board increases as well. And these are relationships that usually start off on the right foot, but business over time can take unexpected turns. And so you want to make sure that you have a cohesive team that's helping you figure out these business problems together. After you guys raised the Series A, it was all just up and to the right from there? Well, it, <laughs> it, it was for several years where we could practically do no wrong. I remember the first meeting with Andreessen, we had closed a $37 million Series A and we spent $5 million over budget because we had deferred all of these expenses. And so in that first board meeting, Peter was like, you guys spent $5 million more than you forecast. We're like, yeah. He's like, all right, well, don't do that again. At the same time, you know, you're beating the revenue plan. Everything feels great. Fast forward a couple of years and naturally law of large numbers, growth rate is slowing down a little bit. Now you're starting to focus on a completely different set of metrics. You have a few hundred people at the company we also have these debt relationships and outside creditors. The business at scale certainly changes quite a bit. There's no doubt about it. I love the five-person company where it's do whatever you need to find success to break through the noise. And today at roughly 500, it's a different world. It's about showing everyone else, making sure that they understand the vision, communicating that to them, figuring out a good way to explain the strategy and the goals because with 500 people, it's easy to create silos and have people working on things that are not really aligned with the high-level direction of the business. One is a doer and one is a communicator. Going a little bit deeper in there, I mean, you had an incredible run as the CEO and obviously your role changed quite a bit. What were some of the things that you really missed about those early days as you're kind of growing and becoming that different CEO? Once again, like as the company scales, it really becomes about people. And I was really about servers. So there was this mismatch, but a tremendous amount of personal growth in my time as being the CEO. And I've had a year and a half of kind of being out of the seat. So being able to reflect and grow after stepping out of the role as well. And, and now I feel like I'm actually much more excited about the opportunity to help other people find their opportunity to really grow with a company, help with their personal development, because a lot of the goals that we set for ourselves, we've been able to achieve. And I think that's really the difference is when you're first starting out, you set either personal goals that translate into kind of company goals. And I think at scale, it really becomes about what can you do for the other people that are working for you. And, you know, it, it certainly sounds cliche, but when you are surrounded with a few hundred other people that you've hired, it actually becomes that much more important that everyone understands the same vision, the same strategy, because it's so easy for people to do work and good work, but it may not be aligned with what the company needs in order to really hit that next milestone. And so being crystal clear in communication, focusing on other people, that becomes a very large part of the job. And I just wasn't necessarily ready for that. I wanted to continue. What can I do to move the business ahead? 
I feel really good that we made this change, that we brought on a new CEO so I could see how someone else operates within the specific circumstances that we've had. And so I've seen how much it really is about the other people when you're on the outside of it. I'm excited to potentially think about what lies next and how can you build an amazing company that people want to work for. That's actually a very big challenge that we're still figuring out. We were talking earlier about one of the things that's been helpful to you around coaching, and we talked about Reboot a little bit. So at what point running the company were you like, hey, I think I need a support system? Yeah, that was a couple years in, probably around 100 to 150 people. A lot of people issues, a lot of co-founder disagreement. Yeah, you definitely need outside help. I think especially for that co-founder relationship, because everyone is so close to the business, they're so passionate you kind of need a third party, someone ideally with a lot more experience that can help you to navigate that. Otherwise, just tensions run high, emotions run high. So therefore, intelligence kind of walks out of the room. And what it turns out, once again, is it's less of a business challenge as it is like a people challenge. And so our coach, Jerry Colonna, is really big on personal development as a way to improve your leadership. The other thing to keep in mind is to be patient. These relationships are not going to transform overnight. For us, it took maybe three, four years to really rebuild that bridge with all the co-founders. My brother especially, we're in the best place ever. You kind of need to hit rock bottom. Well, you don't need to hit rock bottom. We (laughs) certainly did. The coach was a blessing because I don't even know if we'd be talking to each other at this point if it wasn't for Jerry. I think we oftentimes don't necessarily share this co-founder conflict. But more often than not, companies wind up in that situation just because people care so much. You're working so hard and you're not necessarily focusing on yourself. You're focusing on this business and you kind of just get caught up into it. And you feel like someone else is getting more credit than they deserve. It was, hey, it was my idea. It was their idea. I think it's really important to be able to maintain that human relationship first and foremost. Then you can build a business. Quite often the business gets in the way. How do you go from a group of almost a family, in your case, a family, to a company and starting to look outside of those networks? And at what point in the business were you deliberate to say, like, it's not just going to be our friends and buddies. We've got to expand the network. I would say that's practically from day one. We're always posting to some kind of a job site. In the early days, it was a lot of Craigslist and that worked well. But we've always kept a wide recruiting funnel. I think referrals go well. Friends of friends certainly helps. But you have to be careful, right? What we've seen over time, also the downside of that kind of friend of a friend strategy is you can create these clicks almost accidentally within a company. So we had a GitHub click. We had, I forget the other one, then the clicks start fighting. Everybody else is like, the oh my. The clicks are fighting with each other? Exactly. Oh. And then the, the rest of the employees are like, we're team DO, like what's going on here? Actually, what this really speaks to is being deliberate with your culture. And that's an element that we didn't really learn about until we hit about 100 people. And I think it was definitely too late. And so what I'd encourage everyone to do is just, it doesn't have to be an overly complex process, but sit down and try to figure out what are your core values? How do you want your company to feel? Are you all about high performance or are you more interested in kind of growth and development? Do you want to move quickly and take high risk? Do you want to move slowly and build high quality neither end of that spectrum is wrong. It's just what kind of style of business do you want to build? And by being intentional there, what you're essentially creating is you're filling up the space because without it, 
in that vacuum, usually a negative perception begins to emerge from kind of employees and rumor and, and gossip. And that's exactly what you want to avoid. So it doesn't have to be perfect. You just need to have some kind of framework there in place so that you could point to, hey, this is what we want to aspire to be, or this is how we want to practice, rather than not having anything in place at all. I think this kind of cultural foundation is important right as you're crossing 20 or 30 people, because that's the point at which you start to really define teams and have managers on board and a different relationship than the less than 20 people that can still work as a large group. Did you make any hiring mistakes? Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> employee counts close to 2,000. There's about 600 people at the company. So wow, <laughs> there's a lot, a lot of mistakes. I'd say I haven't really figured out exactly how to interview people. I'd say kind of two things. One, trust your gut a lot more because ultimately you're going to spend a lot of time with these people. And so I think I used my head a bit too much to try to evaluate, does their prior experience fit the roles and responsibilities and kind of ignored just the interpersonal relationship and dynamics. So that was definitely a mistake. And the second is, if you're getting very close on a candidate, I'd say that's a good time to try to get some back channel reference and it helps in a multitude of ways. Some people are really good at interviewing. Other times, even if you do wind up hiring that person, the feedback can give you areas where they may be weak. So when that comes up in the day-to-day, you see it coming from a mile away and can approach it more with a coaching mindset rather than a critique. So trust your gut and solicit feedback from others. So I was remarking before the podcast that you look well-rested and (laughs) healthier than ever. What are some of the routines you implemented over the years? DigitalOcean, eight years in, can really grind on you. So what are some of the things that you do to keep healthy mentally and physically? Yeah, I mean, I was super stressed out building the company. A few years back, I really got into yoga and meditation. It was just a, a necessity really to deal with the psychological challenges of dealing with all these people and a ton of these problems. So I think kind of a mindful approach allows you to do is just react less to the day-to-day drama and keep a longer outlook, keep your eyes on the horizon. And I think definitely getting some exercise is, is important. So I had a really good routine. I was actually practicing it more consistently when I went to work than I am now. But nonetheless, you know, those things stick with you. They're still a big part of my life, but I'm not as consistent as I used to be when I had to go to the office every day. Looking back, obviously, there's so many struggles and every day there's like a -a whack-a-mole of things you need to deal with. What kept you every morning going in there? What kept you focused? And it's definitely a really long haul. When you build the company, it does feel like a kid. So you feel just this responsibility to the greater team, to the company, investors, customers, and everyone else. So I think it was that commitment is really what drove me and I'm sure drives a lot of other people to just bear through it and almost ignore the personal damage that you're kind of accumulating along the way because you're very selfless, essentially, but almost to a fault because you're kind of, you know, burning out in that process. And when I think about going forward, It's having this experience that would allow you to do it differently the next time. And just to draw back a tangent to a culture, if you 
really focus on building a healthy, proactive culture, I think that can sustain a much more calm and healthy environment for the employees of the business as well. I think at DigitalOcean, our business success wasn't matched with kind of employee happiness. And so sometimes at our highest kind of success points, we had the most amount of chaos in the company. And I think that's an opportunity where being more proactive with the culture, we could have actually matched those two opportunities and had a successful, happy, healthy culture along with a thriving business, which I believe is actually rare. You have to work on that to even kind of take it up one level higher. Our thinking going into DigitalOcean was you need to focus and figure out on your technology slash product, what's your differentiation. You have to build a great product. At the same time, you also need to concern yourself with your go-to-market. How are you going to sell it? How are you going to market it? If you just build a great product, it doesn't mean your company's actually going to take off and scale. So you need to solve for both of those things. I now believe there's actually that third element. You have to have a a view on your culture and, and your people. Those three elements are consistent across any business. What's the thing that you sell? How are you going to sell it? And how are the people going to work inside of this company that, that you're building? Try to have a very explicit answer for all three. It doesn't necessarily have to be right, but having something is better than having nothing. Thank you so much, Ben. Yes, thank Jenny. Thanks for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, and what kind of stories you'd like to hear next. You can find me on Twitter at J.E. Fielding. 